Today's episode is sponsored by Politics and War, the online political strategy game where you get to create your own country and compete with thousands of other players diplomatically, militarily, and economically. Politics and War is free to play with limited microtransactions to ensure the game is fair and not pay to win. Play for free in your browser at politicsandwar.com where you can download the Politics and War app at the App Store or in the Google Play Store, whichever one you prefer. Today's show is sponsored by Unidragon. Everyone has faced the problem. What gift to choose? What to give yourself when you sit at home? What to give a friend or parents? What should you give your wife or husband? What to give to your children or a colleague at work? Unipuzzles by Unidragon solves this problem. Why do people love Unidragon puzzles? Each puzzle piece has its own unique shape. They're interesting for both adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box. New puzzles are released every month and they have an incredibly colorful design. My favorite is the Mandala Inexhaustible Abundance Puzzle. It's more than a puzzle. It's a piece of art. I've never seen anything like this. If you're looking for a gift that is memorable and you're tired of just giving out gift cards or the same old, same old, this is for you. Head over to unidragon.com right now and check out the Mandala or any of their other amazing puzzles. Use coupon code HISTORY10 and you'll get 10% off your first order. That's right. 10% off the most unique and amazing gift you've ever purchased. Just use History 10 and get that great gift today. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 10, The Road to War, Part 1. Welcome back to the show. Today, we finally get into the American history part of the story. So, for those who were starting to think maybe I turned this into the Japanese or Chinese history podcast, thanks for sticking around, and we finally made it. Now, last time we looked at the Japanese attack on China and the rape of Nanking. Now, let's backtrack a little bit and see what was going on with the United States. This episode will explore the steps to war and it will include some aspects of the European theater as well. If not in this one, then it's in the next one, I forget. I've already written them, but um, it's hard to remember what's in exactly which one. So it'll be unique in that it is one of the few episodes, or these are some of the few episodes, which we're going to go outside of the Pacific theater. Anyway, as always, uh, let's start off with the song of the week. This week, our song is Lonesome Road Blues by the Blue Ridge Duo. We'll see you in just a second. Oh, my God. 
McCoyne, where the chilly wind never blows. Oh, McCoyne, where the chilly wind never blows. Oh, McCoyne, where the chilly wind never blows. And ain't it gonna be treated this way? So in the aftermath of World War I, Americans were not in the mood for empire or overseas adventures. Indeed, one could say that America went from about 20 years or so of a pro-interventionist foreign policy back to being anti-interventionist. Now, some argue that this turn meant the United States fatally weakened the League of Nations by refusing to sign the League Covenant and the Versailles Treaty. Furthermore, this would lead to the pro-interventionist camp to lay at least part of the blame for the outbreak of World War II at the feet of the United States. Now, of course, I totally disagree with this assessment. First, the British and the French empires were both members of the League of, Nation, or League of Nations, and they were still the big dogs when it came to international adventurism. Secondly, it was not, and is not, the job of the United States or any other nation to act as policemen of the world. Third, we are assuming that had the United States been a member of the League of Nations, then World War II would have been avoided. And you know what they say about assuming. Now, the United States Senate also rejected the idea of a security treaty with France. This then led to the argument that France had no choice but to undertake an expensive effort to build up a powerful military to try and counterbalance the growing threat from Germany. They then argue that this spurred the Germans on to outmatch France. Now, again, without actual evidence, this really is just a ton of assumptions on the part of the interventionists in America. I've probably said it before, but the neocons and their interventionist friends always assume that every single thing in foreign policy or every event is the moral equivalent of Munich 1938. Anyway, the Senate also refused to adhere to the World Court, the judicial arm of the League of Nations. Now, all of this leads critics, people like, say, John McCain or neocon historians, to say that the United States avoided or missed a chance to emerge from World War I as the world leader and to shape world events for the benefit of peace. I'd say the critics mean to say it missed an opportunity to emerge as a world empire and rule the way it has done since the end of the Cold War, which is what they really want. Now, of course, that would lead me to then ask, how'd that three decades of world leadership work for us? Um, we've run up debts of a trillion dollars, trillions of dollars actually, and just had to pull out of Central Asia in humiliating fashion, but never mind all that. Furthermore, the United States refused to participate in alliances that might obligate the country to fight a future war. It did take part in peace agreements that were, for the most part, symbolic, or so the argument goes. Again, the critics argue that these peace agreements had no enforcement mechanism. Now, my rejoinder to all this is, okay, let me get this straight. 
you want a peace agreement to have a militant response mechanism if the other side doesn't follow it. That's not really how they work, at least not generally, but okay. Um, now let's go on and look at some of these agreements. First, the Washington Naval Conference of 1921-22. This was mentioned, I think we did, we mentioned it in episode 5, but it came about thanks to the fact that it was apparent that a naval arms race was brewing between the United States, Britain, and Japan. Now, interestingly, there was a long-standing agreement between the Japanese and the British which obligated the English to come to the aid of Japan in the event that war should break out between the U.S. and Japan. Now, that might sound odd to us now, but it was signed in 1902. And remember, in the 19th and the late 18th century, the U.S. and British, they were not the best of friends. Officially, the conference, organized by Charles Evans Hughes, Secretary of State for the United States, was to address naval disarmament and the unstable political situation that existed in the Far East. Now again, this is the reason given by the usual narrative of the era. However, what does it mean? How would cutting down the number of ships Japan could have led, well, how would that have led to stability? In the end, it actually had the opposite effect. In my mind, and I don't have anything to back this up, but in my mind at least, the point of this was to separate the British from their Japanese allies. The Americans had been expanding in the Pacific for at least two decades by this point. Um, really, even more than that. You could go back to the 1890s. If you remember back to Season 3, we even discussed that in the American Empire episode, um, how they were expanding in that region. Now, with the end of uh, World War I, the U.S. acquired Pacific Islands that had been part of the German Empire, and was on a collision course with the rising power of Japan. Unless the Americans were going to ally themselves with the Japanese, and as we spoke about in the last episode, there were arguments to be made in favor of such an alliance. However, such a union of the major anti-communist powers never emerged, at least not up until after the war. Instead, well, we know what happened. Okay, so this brings us to the Five Power Treaty, signed in February 1922. And again, I think we discussed this when we were talking about Japan, but that one was episode four. But anyways, this established a 5-5-3 ratio with Britain and the United States allowed to have five battleships for every three the Japanese were allowed. It also said the French and Italians could have 1.75 ships to every five for the Americans. Further, the manufacturing of battleships was prohibited for a decade. Now, I mentioned the Japanese Anglo or the Anglo-Japanese alliance a moment ago. That was replaced by something known as the Four Power Treaty in 1922. It obligated Britain, Japan, France, and the United States to preserve the status quo in the Pacific, a concession made to the Japanese. Then there was the Nine Power Treaty, the purpose of which was to maintain the open-door policy in China. There were loopholes in this treaty, which could be exploited. So, for example, no restrictions existed on small warships. This resulted in other powers constructing cruisers, destroyers, and submarines, while the United States failed to engage in any of these activities. Now, some might argue this was dangerous for the United States, but I would argue the opposite, that it's actually providing the United States with flexibility. When the time came, it was able to pivot more easily, rather than continue down a path that was a dead end. What I mean by this, for example, is the Japanese. They'd invested highly in battleship construction and the ideas of Alfred Thayer Mahan, but in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, thanks to the fact that its battleships were all sunk, it had to think outside the box, and by it I mean the United States. Thus, 
the U.S. went with aircraft carriers. But that's a story for another episode. Now, in the aftermath of World War I, the United States emerged as the world's largest creditor nation and demanded that Europe pay or repay its war loans. Despite the loans, European economies were at best in the doldrums and could not fully recover. The amount owed was uh, $16 billion, which would be about $300 billion in today's money, give or take. Now, here was a point of contention between the Allies. Britain and France argued that the American demands for repayment were unfair, and the debt should be written off as the price of victory. They further argued they had sacrificed the flower of their youth, which in the end benefited the United States. Remember, during and after the war, American products and services were in high demand. The last part of their argument was that the tariffs placed on goods by the United States government made it impossible for Europeans to sell goods and then earn the money back to pay off the debt. Now, the interesting thing is that while Britain and France balked at the demands placed on them by the Americans, they themselves placed demands on Germany. The Versailles Treaty demanded that Germany made enormous reparations to the Allies, repayments that totaled about $32 billion for war damages. They hoped to use that money to then settle their debts with the United States. However, the German economy could not handle the strain, and it collapsed in 1923. Now, when Germany could not repay the French... France sent troops into Germany's industrial Ruhr region. To try and meet the demands, Germany allowed its currency to inflate, and the result was hyperinflation. Now, how bad was it? A loaf of bread, which cost about 160 marks in Berlin late in 1922, cost 200 billion marks by the end of 1923. Yes, you heard that right, 200 billion for a loaf of bread. Germany descended into chaos, while the international banking system itself was in jeopardy. The United States refused to cancel German war debts, which would probably have been opposed by most Americans anyways. But there was a lifeline given to the Germans. President Calvin Coolidge appointed American businessman and politician Charles Dawes to come up with a plan to alleviate the reparation crisis. Dawes rescheduled German reparation payments and opened the way for further private loans to Germany. These loans helped Germany repay France and Britain, which in turn repaid the United States. Dawes himself received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1925 for his work in the crisis. Now, in the end, the occupation of the Ruhr actually turned out to be a boon for the German steel industry, as well as for its repayment program, or I should say its rearmament program. The influx of capital allowed German industries to rebuild and even expand. We also had a reduction in the coal that was being supplied to France, and that hobbled the French steel industry. By 1926, the German steel industry was once again dominating Europe. Today's show is sponsored by King of the World. This is a seven-part podcast series about a Pakistani-American Muslim teenager who comes of age post-9-11 and, 20 years later, tries to figure out what the heck happened to him and us. King of the World is a narrative, non-fiction podcast that covers topics like identity, belonging, addiction, patriotism, discrimination, racism, punk rock, history, Islam, Muslims, 9-11, spying, and so much more. I know this is going to be your new favorite podcast. Check out King of the World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Okay, let's get back to the show. This episode is sponsored by Beacon, the navigation sharing app that allows you to share your ETA and arrival with one or more people 
while keeping your location private. Have you ever had to answer the question, when you're going to be home, only to say, uh, soon? I know I have, and this app will help you answer that question in a way that's far better. Beacon is easy to use. Just drop a beacon on the map, share it, and hit start. The ETA updates as conditions and routes change. Beacons are saved on the map and can easily be reused. As people arrive at the beacon, all of you get notified. This is great for, say, meeting several people at the cinema or a sporting event, or even maybe a meetup at a restaurant. No more answering, hey, are you on the way yet? Go to www.beacon.site to learn more and install the app. Okay, let's get back to the show. Now, having said that, let's discuss the rise of totalitarianism and fascist aggression. Let me remind you that we've already discussed the rise of militarism and aggression in Japan. So this will be a quick summary of what we said in earlier episodes. Figured I'd include the Reader's Digest version here, just in case some of y'all skipped those episodes. Now, in the aftermath of World War I, totalitarian regimes rose in various areas, including Russia and Italy. So let's define fascism. It's a form of government founded by Benito Mussolini. The problem is that, as historian um, Ian Kershaw notes, trying to define fascism is like trying to nail jelly to a wall. But let's try. Now, first I'd say that it glorifies the state and it seeks to aggressively expand through conquest. A second aspect is that it is the marriage of big government with big corporations. And then finally, I'd say that unlike communism, which used violence as a means to achieve an end, for the fascist, violence is the end goal. As you probably know, Italy was ruled by Benito Mussolini, the founder of fascism, starting in 1922. In Japan, a military dictatorship took over, and although there is some argument as to whether it constituted true fascism, I think it was close enough that we can safely call it fascism. Another totalitarian ideology, communism, took root in Russia during World War I under Vladimir Lenin. As merciless as the Soviet government was under the leadership of Lenin, it was even more ruthless after Joseph Stalin took over in 1924. Now, under Stalin, the Soviet Union saw a devastating famine. Estimates vary, but Ukraine saw at least 3 million people starve to death, while another 2 to 3 million died in Russia, and about 1.5 to 2 million died in Kazakhstan. Now, if you didn't know, this all came about when Stalin and the Communist Party ordered the liquidation of the Kulaks, who were wealthier landowning peasants as a class. So much for the communists caring for the peasants, right? Now, as we spoke about in our first episode on the Sino-Japanese War, Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931 and set up a puppet state known as Manchukuo. The League of Nations condemned this act of aggression by Japan, but they lacked any mechanism to enforce the idea of collective security. Furthermore, Japan went on and violated both the Nine Power Treaty and the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is that President Hoover refused to impose economic or political sanctions on Japan. But he also did not recognize the conquests as legitimate either. There's an irony in all of this, or hypocrisy, and the Japanese were angered by it. I think they would have termed it hypocrisy, if I'm being honest. The United States, which refused to recognize the conquest of Manchuria, had its own colonies, such as the Philippines, which were taken by force. So they must have wondered, where do the Americans get off condemning Japan when it was just following the model set up by the Western powers? In response, Japan withdrew from the League of Nations in protest. Now, I don't know that I spelled out the reasons for Japanese aggression as well as I could have. Um, so just in case, here's a short set of reasons. First, it was seeking economic self-sufficiency. 
and to gain that, it needed access to raw materials. Remember, Japan is not a resource-rich land. It especially needed to access uh, or access to coal, iron, and oil. Now, a second reason was that Japan had a large and increasing population. The United States, Australia, and Canada all had limited Japanese immigration. For example, the National Origins Act of 1924 banned Asians from immigrating to the United States. A third reason was that it wanted to open up foreign markets to its products, but had been frustrated by attempts to do so. High tariffs from other nations reduced Japanese exports to 50% between 1928 and 1930. This was due to the Great Depression. Now, the last two things that were causing Japan to feel as if it was mistreated, especially by the United States, was the unequal status it endured in the naval treaties of the 1920s and at the Hoover-Stimson Doctrine for refusing to recognize Manchukuo. Hence, in 1934, Japan unilaterally withdrew from the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922 and began a massive naval buildup. Then, in 1936, it signed the Anti-Comintern Pact with Germany. This was basically an anti-communist alliance. Later, in 1940, the Japanese signed onto the Tripartite Pact, which created the Rome-Berlin-Tokyo axis during World War II. Now, a lot is made of this alliance, but honestly, the Japanese were essentially a third wheel. If you've ever noticed, the Japanese never did much when it came to fighting Soviet Russia, and one wonders why. Or at least I wonder why. In my opinion, if I were the leader of Japan, I'd have looked to assist Germany in knocking the Soviet Union out of the war. Instead, the Japanese made the fatal decision to head east and take on the United States. But more on that in upcoming episodes. Now, speaking of upcoming episodes, I'm going to end this one here. Lately, they've been longer than my goal of 20 minutes, and this is as good a place as any to end our talk for today. Next time, we will start off with a look at American non-interventionism in the 1930s. Now, if you've enjoyed our show, as always, please check out the Patreon. For as little as $10 a month, you'll get access to two bonus shows that weren't available or aren't available anywhere else, the awesome 1983, the, world, the year the world almost ended, and as well as that one, you get Quagmire in the Middle East. You also get the regular episodes commercial-free. Now, if that's not your thing, feel free to simply patronize our sponsors, especially Fable Beard Company. Be sure to use the coupon codes I've given out for them so that you can get those awesome discounts. I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Episode 10 of The War in the Pacific. Until next time, have a great day. Shut it off, Rob. Oh, please, we like it. Wait a minute.